Good evening and welcome to the Culinary Historians of Chicago. And we have a very celebrated author tonight, Peter Reinhardt. Um, he's an expert, but I'll, I'll tell you about him in a second. But Peter's here in celebration of his newest book, Peter Reinhardt's Never Ending Search for the Perfect Pizza. Um, he's an award-winning authority and he returns for his third visit, or it might be four, to the Culinary Historians of Chicago. Peter is the author of 13 books on bread, food and culture, and of course, pizza. His books have won four James Beard and IACP awards, including Cookbook of the Year for his book from 20 years ago, The Bread Baker's Apprentice. Peter's a faculty member at Johnson and Wales University in Charlotte, North Carolina, and the executive director of the Johnson and Wales International Symposium on Bread as well as the host and founder of the video website, pizzaquest.com, where he continues to chronicle his never-ending search for the perfect pizza. And Peter's also a friend of mine. Uh, we've known each other for many years, and I've even had the pleasure of sharing rooms with him at, at food writers conferences. Um, and I know one night before we turned off the lights, uh, I had had his book with me, so I said, will you sign your book before you go to bed? So that's pretty neat when you're asking somebody for an autograph and they're your roommate and an extended member of the family, a member of my extended family um, was talking to me about bread once and he was quoting, he was saying, oh, you've got to do this and that. And he said, I learned this from Peter Reinhardt from reading his books. And I told this friend, uh, this relative, that, uh, oh, he's a friend of mine. And the guy almost fell over. He couldn't believe that I knew Peter. So uh, this this guy is not chopped liver. That's all I can say. And we're going to listen to him now. And he's going to give us a crusty talk on pizza and pizza history. Peter, please take it away. Thank you, Scott. And it's good to be back. It's good to be back to the food historians. It, it feels like I think it's my fourth time. But of course, you lose track of these things. And you know, the pandemic just sort of knocked out all memory cells. So I feel like we're starting fresh, but I'm glad to be back. The first time doing it via Zoom, but at least we get to make it happen. I was hoping to uh, come into Chicago again, which is one of my favorite things to do. Uh, and the last time that I was there when we uh, we were talking about a book that I had called Perfect Pan Pizza back then. And uh, uh, afterwards, you know, uh, yeah, we I, I think if I'm not mistaken, Scott, we had that uh, we held it in a venue that was like a uh, assisted living center, you know, so half the audience were, were residents of the assisted living center who, you know, had been rolled down in wheelchairs. And then, and then we had a few food historians there as well. So it, I think this time we're going to get a more uh, targeted audience. <laughs> but uh, again, thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, I, what I'm going to do is talk about my new book, uh, and it's called uh, Pizza Quest, my never ending search for the perfect pizza. Well, I, I, I wanted to actually the subtitle for the book was supposed to be my never ending search for the perfect pizza continues. And my editor wouldn't let me use the word continues in the subtitle because she said it's redundant. And I said, no, it's a, it, because the first book I did on pizza was called my never ending search for the perfect pizza. So I wanted to add continues. And she said, no, it's redundant. You can't do it. Uh, and she wouldn't let me do it. So, uh, so I, but I still sometimes will just slip and say it continues because this book is about the continuation of this search that began over 15 years ago with American Pie uh, and continued in the book Perfect Pan Pizza and now continues here and evolved into a website and podcast 
that we call Pizza Quest. It's a series of video uh, uh, webisodes, interviews with a whole lot of pizza luminaries. And the pandemic is actually the probably the trigger for what made this book happen because when we couldn't get back on the road and film uh, at venues at pizzerias and interview people face to face, we wanted to do something to fill the void. And we started doing these Zoom interviews. I had never done a Zoom before, but I learned pretty quickly how to do them and it became around just at the right time. Zoom Zoom, and other kinds of, uh, of these, uh, you know, interactive mediums came along just in time to kind of make communication possible. So we, I started interviewing a lot of people that I met over the years during these searches and uh, run into at pizza expos and, and events like that. And the interviews were great. And we explored with each of these people, number one, how they were surviving, how their businesses were surviving the pandemic. Um, uh, you know, they, we got a little bit deeper into their own story and what it was that drove them individually, each of them to, to achieve greatness in the realm of pizza in a large category in which there's tens of thousands of operators, but only now a few hundred. And at the time I wrote my first pizza book, there were maybe less than 50 pizzerias that could be called great, you know, great destination pizzerias in this country. Um, and now there are hundreds, but there, you know, there are also thousands of others that are good. And so I'm going to get into sort of this, that narrative here in a second, when I will walk through this, 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 uh, uh, I'll call it a device or a way to frame tonight's talk through the 10 commandments of pizza, which is, you know, it takes up only one page of the book, but it gives me sort of a structure to be able to tell the story. And I've got some photos from the book to help provide some illustrations of the narrative. There's, there's only, there's only time to do some of these photos. The book itself features from the people I interviewed on the pizza quest podcast, uh, which now exists both as a video podcast, the zoom version, and then uh, heritage radio network picked up an option to do an audio version. So now all of the early, uh, and, and we did literally dozens, probably 60 or so of these video interviews, maybe 70. Um, and now they're running on different schedules on my website, pizzaquest.com, but also on Heritage Radio on every podcast you know, carrier now has Pizza Quest and they have the audio version. So we're getting a lot more, we're reaching a lot more people as a result of that. Uh, and in most of the interviews, the pe person who I'm talking to will usually end with some kind of a demonstration. They may show us a signature pie that they're doing or technique that they've developed or a method for how they make their dough. And of course, that's hard to show on the radio. You know, so we uh, I just try to be as descriptive as I can and, and repeat what they're doing uh, and add words to their to their actions. Um, and what happened was, is after we were doing this for over a year and we had all this content. Uh, I, I realized that we had accumulated a tremendous amount of intellectual content, of, of great content from some of the best pizza makers in the world. And I thought, why don't we kind of consolidate that into a book? And I asked the people who had participated if anybody would like to have one of their pizzas featured in a book. Uh, and uh, if they did, let me know. And then we worked with each of the ones who said yes to hone in on the one or two pizzas that we would actually include. And the challenge, as any of you who are writers know, is there's all these geniuses out there doing pizza their way. I didn't want to ask them to have to reveal their any secret techniques or proprietary methods. What I wanted to do was get a shot, a beauty shot of the pizza that we were going to feature 
And then uh, I would do what I called a tribute version. I would create a homemaker's version of that pizza using my knowledge as a, as a bread guy and a dough baker that, that I could create a variation of that that would be, as I described it, uh, and some of you read this, um, that these guys are the the Beatles of the pizza world. And I'm like the house band at the Marriott, you know, playing their greatest hits. So I'm the cover band. And I said, so I'm going to do cover versions of your greatest hits, uh, but you need to give me a photo. So I know what the, what I'm shooting for and general description and enough information. So I could create a homemaker's version of that. And then I created four master doughs that could be used to do any of these various styles of pizza. And then we, then we went for it. And we ended up in the end with 35 pizzas, that are featured in the book. There certainly could have been many, many others. There's some that just didn't come in in time or people who I interviewed after the book went to press. So we have enough material to probably do another book if this one does well. But um, we have, of those 35, there are 30 people that contributed. And there's a few people that have two, two recipes in the book, two pizzas in the book. Um, and so I'm going to walk you through it. And in fact, I'm going to share my screen. And at the end, I'll try to leave some time for Q&A. Uh, but I'll, so I'll go through this fairly quickly. Uh, but uh, let me just sort of fly through this uh, before we take any questions. Great. So this is the cover shot of the book. Uh, this is this is a pizza that was came to us. And I'll tell you a little of the backstory of some of these pizzas that we're featuring today. So this this is a pizza that uh, was made by a guy in L.A. Uh, named uh, Justin De Leon at Apollonia's Pizza. Some of you will know these some of these places. And and please forgive me if I'm omitting both from the book and from the presentation tonight, uh, your favorite pizzerias and ones that you think should have made the book. Uh, as I said, we can only include so many and I wanted to leave room for volume two and volume three. So we, we got the ones that I could get and we were able to put this together. So Justin has become famous on the on Instagram and social media for his, his pizza photography as well as his pizzas. He was a, a professional of fashion and food photographer before he got into opening his pizzeria in LA. And he started focusing in on these Detroit style pizzas. He makes other kinds of pizzas as well. But what he figured out was a technique for causing the cheese to climb up the, the pan, the sides of the pan to, uh, you know, create what he calls a crown. And so his crown pizzas have become a little bit of an internet uh, sensation. It's put him on the map, got him a lot of attention. And, and his pizzeria is now, you know, known everywhere because of his visual work and, and the pizzas themselves are great. Nancy Silverton of uh, a pizzeria as a moza, who's not included in the book because I didn't really want to try, even try to replicate some of her pizzas uh, for this, but she was interviewed on the, on the question in that interview. She's the one who told me I needed to seek this guy out. Uh, and so this is a, a, a pizza that, and those, those are like dollops of a ricotta cheese that goes on after the pizza comes out of the oven. The, the, the hallmark and, the, and the, the, the point of these Detroit pizzas and why they're getting so much traction, and many of you know this, and I'll be saying things that a lot of you already know, but for the sake of those who don't, the Detroit pizzas have, be, have gotten a lot of traction lately because they have, a, when they're done right, they have a phenomenal undercrust. They kind of a a, a hot buttery toast quality that when you bite into it, it just it just shatters in your mouth like toffee. And then it's they're loaded with cheese, and you can do anything on top that you want. They're a little thicker than a Neapolitan style pizza, but when done right, the crust should be so good that you you it's it's not like wait there's too much dough here. It's kind of like there's not enough. I want more crust. I want more crust. That's what it's done right. And Justin's an example of them. Now what I'm going to do is as I go through some of these. 
I'm going to uh, uh, read some of the, these commandments, and, and I'm just using the term commandments as a way to f- sort of frame the book and move the story forward. But uh, I coined these as a way to kind of identify the guiding principles that led me to determine my version of what I consider to be a great pizza. And because this book, as all my books, are really about the difference between good and great. And so there's thousands of pizzerias in America. Most of them are making really good pizza, but there's only a few that have broken from the pack. And that's kind of the story I wanted to tell us. What is it that they're doing that differentiates them? Why are there's, you know, um, getting notoriety? Why, why, and what makes them great? What defines greatness? So I'm going to start with this, with these, uh, this first commandment. There are only two kinds of pizza, good and very good. And by very good, I mean great. And by great, I mean memorable. Memorable Memorableness means you can't stop thinking about it. Can't wait to go back. Can't wait to take your friends. This is the determination of greatness. So that's how I kind of like, that's how I broke the pack. There's pizza. And then there's those places that you obsess about. I could have put the word obsess in there, but really that's what it comes down to. We're talking about a level of obsessiveness that gets into your brain and into your, you know, your, your taste bud hall of fame and makes you want to go back and take people back there. So that's what we're looking for. And what is it that these people are doing that are getting it, getting us there. So let's see what the next one. So this is one of the pizzas that we're featuring in the book. And this is, um, the, what we call Clams Casino. This one was developed and 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 uh, submitted by Brian Spangler, who is the owner and founder of Apisa Shoals in Portland, Oregon. Uh, I've already gotten you know some. I saw saw somebody uh, on Amazon in their review said that that they loved the book, but they were being from New Haven. They were very offended by the fact that I used a, a clams pizza that wasn't New Haven style. But of course, the New Haven pizzerias have been doing it for a long time, and they and they weren't the ones that we're trying to feature in this book. We're trying to do something unique. So this is one that Brian developed, and I'll tell you a little bit of the story of this one. Um, a piece of Shoals is has been around now for about 15, 17 years. It opened right after my first book, American Pie, and I knew Brian before he opened his pizzeria. He was an artisan bread baker like me, and we were on the Bread Bakers Guild board together, and we were all in the bread world. And but he told me at one point that one of his dreams was to open a pizzeria. And then and the next time I got back to Portland, my my first pizza book had come out, and a reporter uh, took me wanted to, wanted to do the interview while I was on tour, kind of promoting the book to a new pizzeria to you know kind of do a set make that the setting, give it the backdrop. And they took me out to this little town called Shoal Valley, and there's a piece of Shoals and out walks Brian from the kitchen. And I go, Oh my God, he did it. This is your pizza. He says, yeah, he says, I can't believe you pulled the trigger. You're actually doing it. He says, I know I'm crazy, but I had to do it. I had to get it out of my system. And what happened was, is uh, the article came out. It was a really nice article about the book. And, and in it, we talked about how great Brian's pizza was there. Uh, and the pizzeria became like a big hit. Everybody started driving out the 45 minutes out the Shoal Valley. And it became so popular that the citizens, the residents of the Valley uh, approached Brian and we say, they said, congratulations, you know, on your success, but we'd like to ask you to leave. He said, you're bringing too much traffic to our peaceful little Valley. And um, he couldn't believe it, but you know what? It was the best thing that could happen to him because it forced him to go into Portland itself, reopen. And he's been there now for 15 years and has become, you know, one of the top, you know, on any top 10 or top 20 list, a piece of shoals doing 
what he is what he would describe as sort of a New Haven, New York style pizza, not a Neapolitan pizza, not a Detroit pizza, but you know more in the New York pizza style, uh, in a way that evoked his food memories from growing up in the East Coast. Uh, he wanted to do something on the West Coast that matched those memories. And he's been tweaking his recipes over the years. He's never satisfied with what he's got. And that's one of the hallmarks of, of these artisan pizzerias and the, and the great, the, the ones that separate themselves and are great, is that they're always, you know, there's, they're constantly digging in deeper to try to push the envelope of what their pizza can be. So he was, um, he had been discovered by a number of people, including Anthony Bourdain, who was filming in the Portland area uh, for one of his, one of his uh, shows. And he, um, uh, he did some sh- some footage with Brian, and at the end of the day, they were just totally exhausted, and 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 Anthony was hungry, and he says, "Can you make me a pizza?" And they talked about what he should make, and they, and he said, "You know what? I really love I love clams pizza, clam pizzas." And Brian didn't have one on the menu, but he had a bag of clams, some vanilla clams, and he said, "I'll make you a, a clam pizza with bacon." And he kind of created what we call clams casino. A clams casino is. Uh, if you grew up in the East Coast where I did, uh, you could get a plate of these uh, baked clams with uh, crumbled bacon and seasoned breadcrumbs and Tabasco on it and some parsley, and you just pop them. And and so this pizza basically is a clams casino on a pizza. And uh, it was delicious. It's it made, it's a beautiful shot. And let me see if I have a, um, a little quote from him. Uh the, the thing that I always am wary about and the reason why the uh, Frank Pepe white clam pizza from New Haven is so iconic because it really is one of the most famous pizzas in America, uh, even though it's now four generations into their, their their operation, is because it's loaded with clams. But they're not clams in the shell. And most places, and one of the things I don't like about ordering a clam pizza, especially in a Neapolitan, you know, wood-fired Neapolitan restaurant, is that they usually put only like six clams on the pizza. And it's like, a, you know, I call it a clam tease. Uh, it's just not enough clams. And so uh, Brian, Brian felt the same. We talked about that in the interview. And, and this is what he wrote. Um, uh, first, this is what I wrote. One of the things that separates this clam in the shell pie from any other I've had is the sheer abundance of clams. As Brian told me, I'm not going to tease you with six or seven clams like everyone else does. If I'm making a clam pizza... You can damn well be sure it will be a friggin' clam festival. And I wrote a note. And if you know Brian, you know he didn't say the word friggin'. Um, so th- this is a, an example of sort of his bold, over-the-top version. And, and Bourdain loved it and ended up featuring it in, uh, I think it was No Reservations. So so that's just one of the pizzas. And again, on this, we use the, I think in, on this pizza, we use the, one of the doughs is the New York, uh, New York pizza dough. Uh, the, the four doughs are, a classic white dough, more Neapolitan style for wood fire style of pizzas, uh, New York style, which, which again is in the same family. All these pizza doughs are in the same family. Uh, and another one, but it's a little stiffer and it can roll out, you know, it can be rolled out wider. And then there's um, a pan pizza dough, which is high hydration, kind of like a ciabatta style dough designed to be baked in a pan. It can be used for focaccias. It can be used for Sicilians. Um, and then, um, and then sourdough. If sourdough pizza, and that's one of the emerging trends, and we'll talk about that in a second, is that uh, in doing the book, I really got a chance to zero in on some of the, the trends that I've noticed around the country and where we think pizza is going and not just where it's been. So let me go back. I'm going to keep like like uh, uh, interspersing a commandment 
with a photo. So in the next, so the next one is there's no such thing as the perfect pizza. There are only perfect pizzas. And I give a thank you here there to uh, a, a man named Howard Moskowitz and Malcolm Gladwell for this concept. And, and all I'll say about that is if you haven't heard Malcolm Gladwell's Ted talk on, uh, on working with Howard Moskowitz, a food consultant on developing uh, pasta sauces for Prego, just put in, go to Ted, put in uh, uh, Malcolm Gladwell pasta sauce and watch his talk. It's brilliant. And in that, uh, this guy, Howard Moskowitz, made a career out of going to companies and convincing them of one thing, that the public does not want a perfect platonic version of a product. They don't. There's no one spaghetti sauce that works for everybody. And there's no one cola. He was he, he he consulted with Coke and Pepsi. There's no one perfect Coke. There's no one perfect Pepsi. There are only perfect colas, meaning that there's something perfect for everybody. And if you can get that idea in your head, then what happened was Prego uh, came out, ended up coming out with something like you know thirty or forty different variations of of, of pasta sauce and leapfrogged over ragu which was the industry leader who only had a couple. And then, of course, Ragu saw what they were doing. So they started coming out with more. And, and so this started a whole trend towards realizing that there's different strokes for different folks. So um, so here's an example of another pizza. Um, this one is from a, what is now one of the hottest pizzerias in America. Some of you uh, may have heard of it or may have been there even. It's just outside New York City. It's in Jersey City, and it's called Raza. Pizzeria Raza and the uh, uh, proprietor of the Pizzaiolo there is a guy named Dan Richer. And Dan just came out with a uh, with a terrific pizza book. I think it's called The Joy of Pizza. Um, and um, uh, Dan is the hot new pizza guy. He, uh, 15, 20 years ago, when I wrote American Pie, the emerging poster boy for this artisan pizza movement was Chris Bianco. And I wrote a lot about Chris Bianco from Pizzeria Bianco in, in Phoenix, Arizona, still making, you know, one of the best pizzas that you've ever had. But the diff, the distance between what he was doing then and everyone else who's kind of caught up since learning a lot of the same techniques and applying the principles uh, and coming in it with, to it with the same amount of zeal uh, and level of earnestness and caring. In fact, Chris's great line in American Pie was, was that I can teach people my tricks but I can't teach them to care as much as I care. If they cared as much as me, I can make them a great pizza maker. And that's what's happened since. This whole evolving pizza scene has been the emergence of dozens and dozens of people who really care about what they're doing. They're approaching this as a craft and not just as a business. So Dan is doing it. Now, this is one that he only makes for like about six weeks during the summer. He calls it his peak summer corn with smoked cheese. It's relatively simple. Uh, the ingredients are essentially uh, uh, fresh mozzarella, uh, a little bit of onion, fresh corn, and he will only use corn at, during the peak, those peak few weeks when it's, you know, at, at its sweetest and, and, and best. And that's part of the trademark of his places. It's all seasonal farm to table stuff. And it's all about the ingredients. Um, but his crust is also a sourdough crust. And he's one of the few that, well, he started out being among the few. Now there's a whole lot more people getting into the sourdough category of pizza crust, Dan's success is one of the things that's driven him. He's not the only one, but he's one of the people that has driven the sourdough movement in pizza. Uh, he's also got some smoked scamorza cheese, a little bit of smoked cheese, which is kind of like a smoked mozzarella. Uh, and then he finishes it off with chili paste, like a, a Calabrian sambal chili paste. 
um, and then some some just some some fresh flaky salt. But it's simple. You can see the simplicity of this pie, and um, and yet people can't get enough of it. And and it's mainly because the flavors just explode in your mouth. Uh, to backtrack a little bit, I have to say that for me, you know, one of the things that makes pizza the most popular food, the, and I'll say arguably the most popular food in the world in its various forms, whether it's Italian style or, you know, the uh, plays of variations of pizza is that it's just dough with something on it. If pizza in its definition is dough with something on it, there's a lot of products that are not called pizza, but that could be called pizza in, in a way, like, uh, uh, for instance, um, uh, a quesadilla is dough with something either in it or on it. It's kind of like a Tex-Mex pizza. Um, a grilled cheese sandwich could be kind of a variation of pizza. There's something with, about dough with something on it or in it. So we could throw sandwiches in there as well. But dough with something on it or in it works. And the reason it works is because it delivers flavor. Ultimately, that's the bottom line. Pizza is the perfect flavor delivery system when it's done well. It's a, it's a perfect system, whether it's done well or not well. It works even at the average level. Frozen pizzas would never be called destination pizza, but yet we sell millions of them every single day and consume millions of them because dough with something on it, it works. And so when you find somebody who's able to do it at a higher level um, and uh, and the dough you know itself is great and the toppings are great, then you've elevated this you know from sort of the, the, the mundane to a craft experience that uh, can be a showstopper. It stops conversation. So uh, Raza is one of those places. Uh, the next commandment, I'm going to keep moving forward. When it comes to toppings, more is not always better. Better is better. So of course, one of the challenges in the, you know, as American pizza kind of took hold and we started getting pizza chains everywhere and, you know, pizza everywhere, the, the kitchen sink pizza became a thing. And, and the, the um, I guess the idea was, the premise was that if we put a whole bunch of stuff on it, then there's going to be something on there for someone to like. There's a lot of flavors. The problem is if the flavors are, you know, if there's too many conflicting flavors or too many flavors, they muddle, they create a, a flavor muddle. And what you want is for each ingredient to shine. Dan, uh, Dan Richard here at, at Raza, he was a he was a fine dining chef, trained classically trained chef before, as are a number of people who've gotten into the pizza world. And so for him, it's all about the quality of the ingredients and delivering them, showcasing them in a way that that uh, let's say fulfills their promise, or as I say about bread, it evokes the full potential of flavor trapped in the ingredients. So a simple pizza like that, you know, when you take a, each bite, is a flavor burst that that can bring tears to your eyes. And that's what these people are going for. Now talk about simplicity. So more is not better. So this is a slice of kind of on a New York style pizza. Uh, we call it the Hellboy slice. And it's got only, it's just like a, a, a sauce and cheese pizza with pepperoni. But right now there's a big movement in the, in the, in the artisan pizza world to get a higher quality pepperoni. Pepperoni can be a great sausage. It's every bit as great as sausages that come from Italy. It's an American version of a, you know, like a, a Southern Italian salumi. Um, and there's new brands of, of, of uh, what they call cupping pepperonis. You know, when they bake, they cup up. Uh, and normally a lot of people who don't like pepperoni, and there's very few people who don't like a pepperoni pizza, but for those who object, they say it's too greasy. This is not grease you're seeing in the photo. This is hot honey. And, and so the story here is, is that there was a guy um, named Mike Kurtz. Uh, is, he started a company called Mike's Hot Honey. 
And Mike's Hot Honey began at a pizzeria in Brooklyn called Pauly G's. And Pauly G's is uh, is one of the great wood fire pizzerias of the last 15 years. It opened maybe just before around 2010, 2008. And it has become sort of a mother house of a lot of talented people going, working there and starting their own places. And he was doing great stuff. And uh, Mike was working in the music industry. He wasn't a uh, pizza maker, but he loved making pizza and loved eating. And he had this developed this spicy honey. And so he started hanging out at Paulie G's and asked him if he could come and work the line uh, just, you know, on a voluntary basis. And he was good at it. And so Paulie started giving him shifts. And uh, one day he put some of his hot honey on a pepperoni pizza on a pizza that uh, uh, was already a popular pizza. They called it the, uh, the, the, the Del Boy. The Del Boy was the name of it, which turned into later turned, got turned into the Hellboy. The Del Boy was the name of, uh, was the nickname uh, for Paulie's son, Derek. So they named this pizza after Derek. And then it, it got to be too hard to say, give me a Del Boy. So they started calling it the Hellboy. And with the hot honey on it, it made it spicy. So Paulie G opened uh, another pizzeria around the corner, a slice shop, specializing in pizza by the slice, in which he put this on and he called this the Hellboy sliced pizza. So as a result of the interest that was generated at this one pizzeria in Brooklyn, uh, the hot honey thing took off. And at the pizza shows, the competitions, more and more, and I was a judge at these competitions, so I started to see this evolve, that more and more pizzas were being presented to the judges with a squirt of hot honey on it after it came out of the oven. You don't put it on before, you put it on at the end. And that combination of, of sweet and hot was, it's like, it was like secret sauce. It just made everything pop. So you can see even in this photo, it makes, it makes the photo, the, the, the pizza just shine. It's just a pepperoni pizza. And yet it's not like any pepperoni pizza you've ever had before. It elevated the, the, the simple everyday mundane pepperoni pizza to another level. And so now you're not, not only did it, did it become a successful product that the, this Mike's hot honey is now a global brand and you can't hardly go into any pizzeria that doesn't either have Mike's hot honey and not just his pizzeria, but other restaurants are using hot honey on a lot of things, or they're making their own because let's face it, how hard is it to make a spicy honey? Mike made his unique by finding a particular type of cayenne pepper that is proprietary to him. It's a secret pepper, but really a lot of pizzerias just take local, you know, chili peppers and added it to their honey and it works. And I've seen more and more places just make their own. But that one thing, that one ingredient was kind of like a, what would you say, a game changer in the pizza world. And, it, and of course, it's going to spill over into other, other facets of the culinary world. So moving forward. Commandment number four, great pizza always starts with a great crust. An average crust with great toppings can never be more than interesting, while a great crust with barely any toppings can still be a great pizza. Now, that's that's a, a commandment that I created, and people would debate me on that. There's a lot of people who don't agree with that. They're not, they're not as committed to the crust being the key to a great pizza. But most of the people I know, most pizza freaks that I know would, would rate the crust at it be somewhere around 70 to 80% of the importance of the, of what is, you know establishes the greatness of a pizza. Some people will go as high as 90%. Jeffrey Steingarten, when I went out on a, and we went to DeFara's pizza in Brooklyn, which was a famous iconic pizzeria. Uh, um, the, the, uh, the owner of DeFara's, uh, Dom DeMarco, just passed away like a month ago. It was a, a major event in the pizza world, but we went there for pizza. And on the way there, he said, I got to warn you. He said, 
for me, pizza is 90% about the crust and only 10% about the toppings. I don't care how good the sauce is, how good the cheese is. If the crust isn't great, you know, I'm out of there. And, uh, and so he wasn't blown away by the pizza that day. What we found out was when we had the pizza there, uh, and I told somebody, I said, you know, the crust wasn't all that great. It was a little soft, a little soggy. And they said, well, didn't you have them throw the slices back in the oven? And I said, no, no one ever told me I had to do that. And he said, that's the secret at, 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 uh, at the forest, you have to have them throw the slices back in the oven for two minutes. And when it comes out, it's a totally different pizza. And we didn't know that. But I've tried that since. And it's true. It's true. If you're not, if your pizza crust is not blowing you away, you can you can put it back in either on a hot deck or put it in a, in a skillet and get that crust, you know, re- reheat it. And for the while it stays hot, it's going to be twice as good as before you did that. But anyway, the, the idea here, again, is that it's all really about the crust. Um, and so you can do anything. There's a, here's an inventive pizza. There, you know, a lot of people in for this book because a lot of people were sending in summer recipes because that's when I was collecting them. I saw a lot of pizzas with corn and a lot of pizzas with peaches, and 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 they're naturally now. This is one from one of the great pizza makers uh, in in the world, Tony Gemignani. Some of you may know him. Tony's based in San Francisco. He's a world champion. In fact, he's the first Amer- first and maybe only American that ever won the world championship of margarita pizza the, in Naples. He's the first American to beat the, the uh, you know, Napolitanas at their own game and uh, almost had to, you know, sneak out of town because they were furious that an American could dare win the best margarita in the world. But of course he's, he's a competitor. He'd already been the world champion dough, acrobatic dough tossing guy. I mean, he's famous. He's, he's got videos all over the internet and he's got these great pizzerias um, including uh Tony's Pizzeria Pizza Napolitana in San Francisco, where he also has a pizza school and now he certifies people. And, and he's not content to just have like about 15 pizzerias around the country and a school. Now he's opened a bagel shop next door to his pizzeria because he's always looking for new frontiers. And that's one of the trends. I'll mention it here. There's you're going to start to see a lot of pizza plays, pizza people getting into the bagel game. And um, and bagels are having yet another uh, kind of moment, you know, in the spotlight. We'll see this for the next couple of years. I think it's just starting. But Tony's got a bagel shop now too. But this is a pizza that he created called. Let me see. What did he call this one? Um, the peaches and cream. Oh, here it is. Peaches and cream, California style pizza. So it's 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 based on a, on a on uh, a moment. And I I didn't know this until he told me the story when we we put it in the book. It was based on an experience that he and I had when I was visiting out there many years ago, when we were just getting to know each other, and we had uh, we had had some peaches. We'd gone to the uh, San Francisco Farmers Market down in the uh, you know down in the old terminal building, and um, what's the famous uh, 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 Frog Hollow Frog Hollow Farms uh, was was selling their peaches that had already been written up and national magazines having the best peaches in the world. Jeffrey Steingarten talked about the bricks count in these peaches. And so we were both having for the first time a frog hollow peach while we were talking and getting to know each other. And it was again, a jaw dropping moment. We were like stunned how good this peach was. And that moment, he never forgot that moment. And that inspired him to create this peach, this peach pizza for a competition later on where he competed against some, you know, some chefs, some well-known, uh, you know, hotline chefs, uh, uh, not pizza makers. And uh, he put his pizza up against their food and he won the competition with this pizza. So uh, again, going sweet is another option. 
Um, uh, this this particular one has what do we have here? We have uh, you know whole milk mozzarella, um, just regular shredded mozzarella. Um, walnut halves, some um, gorgonzola dolce, which is a creamy gorgonzola cheese, a kind of a super ripe but not not uh, too strong gorgonzola style cheese. A whipping cream, balsamic vinegar, ripe peaches, and um, and a little bit of a, a, a simple syrup that gets drizzled over the top. So he's just playing with flavor. In the end, we're, again, we're just talking about pizza as a flavor delivery system. If you can deliver it with cheese and sauce, why can't you deliver it with a lot of other ingredients? They don't even have to be Italian themed. They can be, you know, working with what you have regionally, internationally, et cetera, et cetera. Wolfgang Puck proved that at Spago 35 years ago. When he introduced, you know, the pizza, two pizzas every day on the menu based on what was available at the farmer's market and started introducing Asian flavors and other kinds of flavors that totally changed the, the, the definition of what a pizza could be. And even if going, looking back to those pizzas, then as good as they were, they're, they're not as good as the pizzas that are being made today, but they, but they paved the way for this new way of looking at pizza. Another commandment and this actually comes from Tony Gemignani. I, I got it from him. On every box at his pizzeria, he's printed the words, respect the craft. He's been the sort of the spokesman for for people understanding that pizza making is a noble craft. It's not just a trade, not just a business. So respect the craft is the commandment. And I thank Tony in this, in this uh, particular uh, part of the book for coining that phrase and making it popular and giving a sense of nobility to the craft of pizza uh, and all the great pizzaiolos are bringing that same ethic and ethos to the, you know, to the pizza craft. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why we're seeing probably the greatest pizzas that have ever been made, you know, in the history of pizza are being made at this very moment. And we'll probably keep getting better and better, you know, as, as folks continue to press the envelope of what pizza can be. So we'll go down and see what's next. Oh yeah, so here's like a, another. Uh, this is this is a Neapolitan pizza. So this is wood fired. These are the ones that became very hot and popular ten and fifteen years ago with the wood fired ovens, the 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 sixty second, sixty to ninety second bake, the big puff, the Italian flour, um, the margarita being the best example of it, uh, fresh mozzarella, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but here's another phrase that kind of uh, came into popularity the last few years coined by some pizza makers. Um, the single most, this is a command worth commandment number six, the single most important tools for pizza makers are our hands. These hands, I'm using quotation marks, these hands are the mark of a true artisan. So there's a guy named Rob DiNapoli who makes, uh, who's a tomato canning guy, DiNapoli tomatoes. Uh, and he's gone into partnership with Crispy Bianco who, uh, to, to, uh, create a, a, a special line of organically grown canned tomatoes that are they're the, the the comparable tomatoes in this country to the San Marzano tomatoes of you know Mount Vesuvius. Um, uh, Rob DiNapoli and uh, John Arena, another great pizza maker who's featured in the book, um, they kind of came up with this movement that they call the These Hands movement, recognizing that for a craftsman, someone who approaches this work and stuff, it's all about the hands, you know, mixers and and uh, rolling pins and, you know, all the other tools uh, are important, but it all begins with the hands. The hands are the most important tools. So it's just kind of a way to give focus to the craft aspect of pizza making. So this pistachio pesto pizza 
is actually created here in Charlotte, just a few miles from my house. Um, there's a pizzeria here called Inizio, um, and he's featured in the book. There's, uh, uh, he, this is a, a pizza that he developed uh, in, in addition to the normal, the most, you know, the, the normal classic uh, Neapolitan pizzas, the margaritas and the marinaras and a few others. He's got this uh, pizza with a, a, a pesto made with pistachio nuts instead of walnuts, and it's beautiful. And it's become a signature pie for him, uh, a destination pizza for anyone who goes to that pizzeria. You get whatever you want to get, but make sure you get the pistachio pesto pizza. That's, you know, sort of how popular this one has become. Um, so, uh, and his name is Grant Ahrens. Um, and, you know, this is an example of a guy who came, he was, he was in the pizza world for many years. He had a college style pizzeria called Farley's that was just doing your everyday good pizza, good pizza with wings and the usual stuff. And he went to Naples on a trip and fell in love with the Neapolitan pizza and became obsessed with it and decided to open, in addition to Farley's, which is you know located on the college campus here, uh, open a Neapolitan wood fireplace that he felt could rival you know what you could get anywhere else in this style. And he's done really, really well. He now has like four locations. And uh, the biggest challenge, and, and anyone who's got a successful pizzeria knows, the biggest challenge is finding people who care as much as you care to come and work for you. And that's really the, what it's all about now when you get to this level of craft. It's not for everybody. It's hard demanding work. Another commandment. When it comes to bread or pizza dough, understanding fermentation is the key. And time is the most important ingredient. So now here is a, um, a Detroit-style pizza that that's baked in a square pan. Um, it's it's a part of this booming Detroit style world. And and if you're making a Detroit style pizza, which is a thicker crust of pizza baked in a pan, you definitely need to not only ferment the dough and and use time as a, as your ally to get better fermentation in the dough. But then when you put it in the pan, you have to let it rise again. You don't bake it, you know, after it's been panned like you would with a with a round pizza where you just pop it right in the oven. This one has to rise for three to four hours before you take it to the oven. This pizza, the sad story with this pizza is that Sean Randazzo, who created it uh, and was one of the sort of the new generation of champions of the Detroit pizza movement. In fact, he even had a company in Detroit uh, that supplied pans and Detroit style tools for anybody else who wanted to get into it. And he was doing workshops at the teaching people every, every trick in his arsenal um, and became, and, and it's a young man, uh, won a world championship for this Detroit. So he took it to the world. He took Detroit pizza to the world and helped to elevate it from being sort of the secret of Detroit to breaking out and showing up in cities all over the country. Uh, sadly, while after Sean gave me this, this uh, uh, pizza for the book, he, um, he died of a brain tumor. 44 years old. It was like heartbreaking. It was, it was uh, you know, it wasn't even like Dom DeMarco who was 80, 88 or something when he died. Sean was at his prime and left a family behind. It, it was a heartbreaking thing. We, he wasn't even able to get a picture to me, you know, because he, obviously he was in, in, in treatment. And so this is the one picture in the book that wasn't provided by the pizza maker themselves. Cause that was each one of them gave me the, the beauty shots that either they or a photographer took. So this is one that we made. We recreated this one in, in my bake shop at Johnson and Wales. And this was the one pizza that I made for the book following his, his, you know, vision for this pizza, which is essentially a, uh, 
Um, you know, it's got chicken. We saw a lot. We see a lot of chicken being used as chicken and bacon. Ranch dressing is being used a lot. Obviously, these things work because they have so much flavor, and um, and so uh, and they work especially good on these thicker pizzas because the, these are like sponges for flavor. So uh, in this pizza, the one thing that I did with this pizza that was not his technique, but a twist. A tw- that I added to it was a technique that I introduced in, a, in the previous book on pan pizza, where we embed some of the cheese in, during the four hour rise when the dough is in the pan and then rises to fill the pan. We put half the cheese on the dough at the beginning and the dough rises around the cheese and embeds it in the crust. And I had talked with Sean about this technique because it was something I developed and came up with uh, on a project I was doing for a restaurant in Texas. And he got pretty excited about it. And he said, I got to try that. I'm going to try this technique first chance I get. And sadly, the, you know, time ran out, but um, uh, we saw a, 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 a number of pizzas came in, pizza concepts came in that used ranch dressing. And of course, bacon, chicken, you know, the, and bacon is a, is a recurrent theme on a lot of the pizzas. We, you, there's just never enough bacon going around. So here's another uh, category of pizza. This is a, a, a big pizza baked in a cast iron skillet. And this, once again, comes from Tony Gemignani, who's, again, he's, he's one of the few that have two recipes in the book. Here's the commandment. I'll read with it. Um, a recipe is a template, a guideline, but it is not a law. Understand the letter, but follow the spirit. So, you know, there was a, a, a short period of time where the Italian uh, Neapolitan pizza community formulated these these hard and fast rules about how to make a perfect VO, v, VPN, uh, Vera Pizza Napolitana, uh, Naples style pizza. And a lot of pizzerias in this country tried, got certified in this technique. They were using the Italian flour, the San Marzano tomatoes, you know, following the rules strictly. And very few of them um, made it. There's a couple that are doing a great job of it. You have one in Chicago, Spacanopoli, that's featured in the book as well, that does a phenomenal true Neapolitan pizza because Jonathan Goldsmith uh, went and spent, did, did you know, lived there. He lived there and learned from the masters and came back and took that craft very seriously. But a lot of people just wanted the, the, the certification, the tools, but they couldn't deliver a life-changing pizza, which is what people feel when they go to Naples, they go, you know, pizza, they've been to the mountaintop and pizza will never be the same for them. Um, so uh, there's a few pizzerias here that are achieving that, uh, but not many that haven't. And so there's been a plateau of that style of pizza. It's not going to go away. It's a great pizza and people keep trying, but then there's, uh, you know, other variations. So, um, uh, you know, in, in Chicago, um, uh, Kathy, I'm going to need you to jump in. Remind me, what was the name of that pizzeria you were talking about last night? That uh, oh, Burt's. Burt, yeah, Burt and Burt's. And, and what was the, what's and, the other and one? Pequod. Pequod. And Pequod. So this is kind of a playoff of Pequod and Burt's pizza. For those of you in Chicago who know that place, they're, they're baked in a pan. And what makes them so wonderful, and this is, and theirs don't look like this, except around the edge. What makes them so wonderful is they've got this crispy, cheesy, crunchy edge around the outside because they're baked in the in cast iron pans. And so Tony came up with one that is both baked in the pan and it's got tomatoes that are baked on during the, the baking cycle. And then when it comes out of the oven, he puts fresh tomatoes over the top and dollops of, of uh, fresh cheese uh, on top of that and drizzles some other kind of sauce over the top of all that and shines it up. And, um, and so it's vibrant. It's beautiful to look at. 
and yet it's got sort of that best, that crunchy crust that people love, and then the explosive flavors of both the fresh and the cooked tomatoes. So you know, he's really, again, playing with this notion of pizza as a flavored delivery system. He's got even some jalapeno peppers on there. Um, it's just, an, this pizza is, is an explosion of flavors. And, uh, and so essentially, and here's a guy that as, as, you know, internalized the pizza rules, the rules that, because he made the best margarita pizza in the world at this competition, following the rules. In fact, he knew the rules better than the judge who was, who started to, because he was an American, they thought they could sort of, uh, you know, over, overpower him a little bit with their, with their, uh, uh, what's the word their their, their sense of imprimaturness. They, and they started telling him he was doing it wrong and he, and he wasn't supposed to use this particular box to raise the dough. And, and Tony said, no, this is the authentic traditional way. And the judge started giving him a hard time. And the head judge came over and pulled the judge aside and said, no, he's right. Tony's right. This is the, his way is the authentic way you're wrong. And so he knew what he was talking about, but at the same time, you know, and as many of you know, you, it's, if you're going to break the rules, then you need to know the rules. And so he's not, really breaking rules here she's expanding the scope of what the rules can be and i think and that's what i call the spirit the spirit of this thing you know always transcends the letter of the law so another rule is and i've we said this over and over again that the only pizza rule that matters is the flavor rule and the flavor rule is simply flavor rules so i get a lot of emails from people that were playing with their pizzas and they ask me they say we came up with something i want to try but what do you think do you think this is a legitimate approach you know is it is it is it is it really pizza or is it you know is it allowed to do this and i'll usually ask them um you know do you like it does it taste good and they go yeah we love it everyone loves it i go well then who cares if it's broken any kind of you know culinary rules if it works um the rule the the, the rule that trumps the you know the written rule is the flavor rule and so if it, if it passes the flavor rule, then don't apologize, you know, keep making them. Now, here's a, a style of pizza that um, is an, a, you know, an older, an older style. It's a, it's a, uh, an Alsatian pizza that uh, is in France. They call it tart flambe in, in, uh, in, in uh, the Alsace region, they call it flama culture. Uh, and basically it's a white pizza made, you know, and their, whatever their style of pizza crust is there, which could be yeasted or not yeasted. Um, but it's just basically a white pizza, usually with bacon or speck or some kind of other, but a, a white sauce, a white creamy sauce. And I think we're going to see more and more of this. I think there's something about this flavor combination that has, I'll just, can only just say has traction. It's once you've tasted them, you kind of get hooked on them. And um, and so I, both Brian Spangler and Leo Spaziri, who is a Chicago, we're going to talk about Leo in a second. And he's a Chicago guy. Uh, both of them have two pizzas in the book. And so, and they both submitted a tart flambe and they were both so, so good, similar, but different that I felt like I had to put them both in. So this is a picture of Brian's, but in the book, you'll see uh, Leo's uh, version, which is also equally beautiful, equally delicious um, with slight different tweaks. But there's something, again, you bite into this and this white creamy sauce, almost like a bechamel, it just, it just melts in your mouth. Pardon me. And then the smokiness of the meat, you know, it just, it all works together. So I think we're going to see this. And if you, if you uh, haven't seen it anywhere, if you have a Trader Joe's anywhere nearby, they sell a white pizza, a white tart. They call it, I think they call it a mushroom tart, a mushroom, uh, I forget what the actual on the box is, but they have two of them. One is a mushroom 
and another one has, I think, some meat on it. And but basically, it's it's a tart flambe. They just didn't want to use the word tart flambe, but it's it's a it's this it's this pizza, and it's probably one of the best things. I mean, there's a lot of great products at Trader Joe's. This is one of the top five for me, uh, and you can get get one there that's pretty decent. But if you make if you decide to make uh, Brian or Leo's version, it it could it could change your life. At least it did for me. So I'm up to uh, rule number 10, commandment, or there's actually 11 commandments. I'll get to the 11th in a minute. But the 10th one is tradition should be honored and respected, but as a verb, not a noun. Pizza tradition is constantly expressing itself anew in the ever-present now. And that's what pizza's like this. This one by uh, John Gudekanst, who's in, um, he's in, uh, Ath- where's he, Athens, Ohio? No, uh, uh, let me get John's pizza up here. Um, yeah. So John John's located, his, his pizzeria is called Avalanche Pizza, and it's in uh, Athens, Ohio. Yeah, Athens, Ohio. Um, he is really creative, and he comes up with all sorts of new concepts. For he has the traditional pizzas, all the standards, uh, because still people are going to, you know, always hunt for the standards. But he's constantly bringing out new ideas and exploring what's possible. This is kind of a cross between a focaccia and a pizza. Uh, and he's using a, a poached pear. Um, uh, then uh, he's got some kind of a, a drizzle, uh, a maple syrup drizzle that goes over the top, makes it with walnuts and blue cheese. Um, and it's just, so it's, he calls it a schiacciata, which is another, which is sort of the, the Tuscan term for a focaccia. And it's absolutely stunning, delicious. And it's just one of many things. But see, he was, a, again, trained classically as a chef and for many years worked as a white tablecloth chef. And then he got he fell in love with pizza, as many people have done, and decided to just go into pizza. But he didn't want to abandon, you know, this this fount of creativity that's constantly bubbling in him. So um, he writes articles in all the trade journals of new ideas. He's constantly coming up with new ideas. When I interviewed him, and, uh, and I'm mentioning all this backstory on these folks, because if you're interested in any of them, just go to pizzaquest.com and put their name in the search engine and listen to the interview that we did with them. So j- the interview with John, I thought was really really interesting because he's just he's so inspired and so creative that you can't help but feel more creative yourself when when just by watching because he, he triggers creativity in us is he's on fire with it so i really i really you know uh, fell in love with him and his pizza and he's featured and then what do we have we have any others here yeah so one of the last ones in the book is a stromboli and we have a there's a guy in texas named lee hunzinger who um who was a new yorker who moved to Texas and took all this pizza training, you know, that he brought with him from New York and, and started expressing it in Dallas and, and, and the surrounding area and became really well known. And in addition to doing pizzas, he makes a stromboli, which is a rolled up pizza. And Brian Spangler uh, became very good friends with Lee. I got to know Lee, you know, through the pizza expos, I interviewed him as well. And Brian said, I think that Lee's version of a stromboli, which originated outside of Philadelphia, by the way, strombolis are a Philadelphia thing uh, initially. Um, and of course you can get into arguments about all these origin stories of pizzas, but there's a place just outside of Philly that claims to have invented the stromboli. Um, but Lee's version, he says is by far the best he's ever had. So we got him to demonstrate on pizza quest, how he makes a stromboli. And then he submitted it for the book. And I love this shot. Of course, because this is, there's another shot even better in the book of the, of the stromboli cut with the cheese kind of, you know, oozing out, but it's rolled up. It's loaded with meat. It's kind of like a, a pizza and a hoagie all rolled into one, if you can imagine that. And um, 
And so, if, and then there's one other pizza that I'm gonna I'm going to um, go to this one, a different slide here. So that so this is, is one we couldn't do this one here for the uh, you know food historians in Chicago without uh, uh, doing a Chicago stuffed pizza. And Leo Spazzeri's feature with two recipes you saw he's he's got one on the uh, on the tart flambe, but he also submitted and this has become one of his signature pies. In fact, he does a YouTube video showing people how to make this stuffed pizza. And I think it's had over a million views. Um, and so, and, but I love this shot because you see how that mozzarella cheese is just stretching like crazy. When he does his video, he loves at the end, kind of the, the big reveal at the end is, is to stretch the, the cheese as far as it can go. And he can usually get it about three or four feet, you know, of cheese. And he, he calls okay, it the, the Peter, cheese pole. I, Peter, I'm not seeing the stuffed pizza. Oh, it's not coming up? No. No. Oh, we my see God. your I, old I, slide set. Which is wonderful, but not. Oh, I'm sorry. I know why. Okay, I'm going to stop sharing, and I'm going to share again. Now, now you're getting it. Yes. Okay, so you can see the cheese pull that I'm talking about. So you that so that's that's one of his his things. So this, of course, has two crusts. It has a um, you know uh, cheese underneath, then another crust, then sauce and more cheese on top. And Leo's become famous for this in Chicago. He doesn't have a pizzeria. He's worked in many other people's restaurants, but for the last eight, nine years, he had his own pizza school. He's he's one of the few Americans trained in, in, and certified from Italy in, in a number of styles of pizza. And he had a school uh, up uh, in the north, north of, north of uh, Chicago towards the airport. Can't remember the name of the town they was in, but I was there a couple of years ago. Rosemont. What was it? Well, Rosemont? Maybe it might be Rosemont, but it was up oh, there. Okay. The, in fact, um, uh, the school's still there, but he left. I think it's it, Lombard. I'll tell you the. Let me find the uh, in the book. I'll get the. I think I may have mentioned it here. I think he's in Lombard. Lombard. Well, he's not there anymore himself. He's now working back in the industry, working for a restaurant group, developing. You know, they brought him in to develop. Um, uh, you know, new menu items for them. But um, he's uh, he's extremely creative and a very dynamic presenter. When he does um, when he does at the pizza shows, he'll do demos on the floor and start with like four or five people around them. And by the time he finishes, there's hundreds of people around him because he's a really, really uh, entertaining, dynamic guy. You can go, you can see him on YouTube uh, very easily or, or on social media. And, uh, and he's becoming more and more of a slepper. He's working on his first book. Uh, I think he's even got a TV you know, show in the works. Leo will become a big star and he's, he's uh, a Chicago guy born and bred and uh, Chicago through and through. Um, so I wanted to give him a shout out uh, here at the end of the slideshow. And so this leads us to what I call the 11th commandment, because all of this is about this journey of, um, you know, my quest for the perfect pizza. And, uh, and so at the end of the book, I put in an 11th commandment and that is, it is more about the quest than it is about the pizza and the quest never ends. And that's really what, Pizza Quest as a website, as a concept, everything else. It's really about what drives people to try to achieve greatness. Pizza is just a metaphor. In my world, all food is metaphor. Uh, and it's also pretty good tasting, but it's but it's a metaphor that tells a deeper story. Food anthropologists, food so, uh, writers, food sociologists have written, you know, uh, there's a quote that I love that says, um, all writing about food is always about something else. And so what I'm trying to explore is what is that something else? 
uh, because and pizza and bread both are great metaphors for trying to tell that story and explore that story. So that's kind of what this book's about, what this journey is about. And uh, I'd love to open this up if uh, if any of you you know want to jump in with some questions. Or can we oh, can Peter. we go back to to, to full screen, Kath? Uh, can I stop sharing? You, you know what? You may want. To, sorry, Scott. There's one picture of that cast iron pizza that I think we need to look at because there was a question whether I'm sorry, Scott, if there were lima beans or no. something that looked like a bean. Oh, there might be some cannelloni. Is that beans. garlic? I think it's cannelloni beans. Okay. Let me let me get the recipe. Yeah, here it is. Okay. He has. Um, Gigante, he calls them gigante beans or other white, other cooked white beans. So he uses the large cannelloni type beans. Uh, yeah. So that's like an, again, not your typical conventional ingredient. Uh, but um, let me see what else. And then he's got, a, a, again, a sweet syrup that he puts over the top at the end. So it's savory. It's sweet. There's a lot. You're seeing a lot. Mike's Hot Honey is an example. There's a couple of pizzas in the book that use maple syrup as finishing uh, sauces. A lot of this sweet, savory combo, uh, which if you want to go to sort of a pizza that started that, talk about the Hawaiian pizza, you know, which which is vilified by some but loved by others. The, the combination of pineapple and ham or Canadian bacon. Um, I think the the People, people were, you know, would always joke about, you know, I'm not having a friggin' pineapple pizza, but there's a reason why pineapple pizza does have a following. It's for the same reason. It, you know, it, 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 it and it goes to that book. What is it? Uh, salt, salt, fat, acid, heat, or something like that. You know, uh, uh, Samran Nosert's book. Those four principles are at play. Pizza is a perfect example where those four principles, you know, come together to create an incredible flavor experience. And and I think that now you're seeing so many people finishing off their pizzas with something sweet because it makes all the other flavors pop. And so it's not going to go away. This is something that was a breakthrough, you know, that you had to break through sort of the the uh, the old traditionalists. That's why I have this commandment about tradition is constantly evolving. It's changing. Uh, it's it, it, tradition is not something that, that means the past. It means something that's constantly expressing itself. And I think that we're seeing right now in the pizza world. Uh, there's a couple a couple big trends. One is, you know, this combination of flavors, this new recognition of how flavors work. Um, uh, there's um, uh, an emergence of sourdough is getting bigger and bigger. It's not going to go away. In fact, eventually, I would could imagine that a majority of pizzerias will be working with uh, the artisan style pizzerias will be working with sourdough crust. And it's only a matter of time before the, the dominoes and the pizza huts introduce sourdough once they feel that they can make money on it. But, um, uh, but sourdough is not going to go away because it is the best way to make dough. It's the most complex, deeply flavored dough. It's just more problematic and troublesome. You have to learn how to do it, but it's coming. And, and there's more and more pizzerias that are doing it. We feature a few pizzas in here, though, that came from places that specialize in that. Anthony Mangieri in New York City at Una Pizza Napolitana set the stage for that 25 years ago. Um, so it's getting bigger. The other thing is women pizzaiolas. Uh, we're seeing more and more women uh, take center stage. And there's, a, and there's a number of women featured in the book. Um, they're winning international competitions. And uh, they're their colleagues there's there's uh, 
the, they're fully, you know, I think from what I've seen in this new generation of pizza makers, you know, part of the family, it's a, it's the collegial, there's no competition. There's no women are not having to, uh, you know, kind of uh, fight their way in anymore. In fact, they're being welcomed in because they're bringing something to the pizza world that maybe, you know, was missing before. So uh, uh, you'll see more and more of uh, women pizza makers, you know, get into the game. Um, I think those are some of the big trends. Of course, you know, we've talked about some of the others, uh, bacon and sweet, you know, sweet finishings and things like that. Um, and then these um, oh, Roman style pizza, which I didn't show any photos, but we feature some Roman style pizzas in the book, um, which is, again, a variation of the, the focaccia style, the uh, the the uh, it's 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 you know, somewhere between a Sicilian and a focaccia, but it's airier and it's and um it can go in a lot of there's a lot of different definitions now of what a roman pizza is uh but there's one guy who i like named um massimiliano saiva who's got one one recipe featured in the book uh who's creating a style of roman style pizza if you if you just go to roman pizza academy on youtube and watch some of his videos if you've never seen or had his pizza um uh, you know, uh, watch his videos because they're beautiful and they're and they're some of the best pizzas I've had. Uh, Gabriel Banchi is the most famous guy of the Roman style, but um, that's more I would call focaccia style pizza, whereas uh, Massimiliano is doing a whole different kind of a thing. It's airy and pillow like, and a lot of his pizzas finish off with the toppings after they come out of the oven. And he puts like this pizza we're looking at now. We'll put uh, his toppings on afterwards, so they're beautiful to look at. Uh, as well as having a, a dough that's unlike any of the other styles. Uh, Kathy, why don't you take it from here and um, moderate the Q&A? Scott, you wanted to ask a question? Yeah, uh, Peter. Sorry. Uh, we're we're going to do my questions live, and then Kathy's going to read the chat questions. Um, but uh, I, I did tell Peter before the meeting began, uh, since cheese is such an mostly uh, often used in pizza, an integral part of pizza, I told Peter that the news today is uh, that Kraft is going to open a cheese factory in the Holy Land. Yeah, and he didn't know about that. And he didn't know, too, that they're going to call it the company Cheeses of Nazareth. So uh, anyway, I will move on quickly from that. But uh, you're, you're, you're totally free to react. <laughs> <laughs> How about a, a thumbs up? A thumbs up or a thumbs down for you for, for you out there. <laughs> and any of you and any of you who know any of you who know Scott know that this is that he's got a million of them. <laughs> yeah. it, it comes out like like uh, like tomato out of a can. But uh, anyway, the um, the it, there's um, oh I wanted to point out to everybody and you might have noticed it already, but on the notice that was sent to you. Uh, there are several Peter's recipes at the top. You can just click on the link and find the recipes. Um, anyway, uh, can you discuss, and you gave us the definition of pizza, which was great. Uh, I didn't really know how simple that definition was. Can you give like a, a two or three minute history of pizza, where it came from? And uh, anyway, just just where does pizza come from? There's a lot of, um, and there's probably some people in the in the audience here that, who are historians who know more detail about this. There's there's a lot of arguments about where they, you know. So I I I live in a Greek community here. You know, I go to a Greek church, and so of course 
the Greeks are all claiming that they invented pizza. And there is a case that could be made for that what became eventually Neapolitan style pizza came to Naples from from Greece, from from, uh, you know, uh, sailors that brought that this uh, a type of product that they called uh, uh, a, a type of pita which is similar to pizza over um there's there's probably a good case to be made for egyptian style pizza the, the fact is is that dough whether you see if you if you think about indian bread like naan bread um or any kind of flatbread you know you're already got the base for a pizza when you put something on it you've created a pizza even if you don't call it that i think that that the italians get a lot of credit and naples in particular for inventing what we call pizza here the the round cheese and sauce style of product because that's where it took hold and and there's a lot of great lore that started there in the 1800s with you know the 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 street the street bakers making these doughs with sauce and cheese on it and the guy uh, who who created the margarita pizza you know to pay tribute to the new unified Italy with red white and green um, you know those stories now are pretty common. Um, and of course, every time you hear one of these stories, then there's someone else will tell you, but that's not even true. That's an embellishment of a legend. So I'm not really sure. I, I lost interest at, at some point in trying to really trace the heart of it because I, my focus was more on how do you actually do a good version of it. But um, but I think dough with something on it exists in every culture. And but but then after World War II, a lot of soldiers brought back the knowledge and the experience of having had pizza in Italy, especially ones who were in the in landing forces and the invading forces, and they brought pizza back here. And then it took hold. And, and we started, you know, even though there had been pizzas, pizzerias in New York earlier uh, and in New Haven and on the East Coast and eventually in other cities um, that came over at the beginning of the 20th century, um, it was it was World War II, I think, that triggered the sort of the the, the surge in pizza popularity, and then the the chains, Shakey's, came up with a tavern style pizza. That's another trend that we didn't even talk about: bar pizzas or tavern pizzas, thin crust with you know a lot of cheese taken right out to the edge of the pizza. That's another trend that was popular in the 1950s and is coming back in a big way right now. Some people call them bar pizzas, some call them parlor pizzas, and some call them tavern pizzas. Shakey's Pizza Parlor was was the first big chain to create popularity for that style uh, and then pizza hut and and then later dominoes and some of the others uh began to mass produce it and take it uh you know into the franchise realm and suddenly it swept the country but why wouldn't it why wouldn't it become popular when when even at the average level of execution it's still great it still delivers flavor it's a perfect flavor delivery system and it was only later that a few pizzerias you know the, either survived because they were great from the beginning like Frank Pepe's and Sally's in New Haven and other places that have been around, um, John's in New York City, that survived and had people from the family keep it going. But then, then this artisan movement started in, I would say, in the 1990s, parallel to the bread movement, the artisan bread movement and the craft beer movement. All of these things started around the same time because they're all about fermentation and they're all very following very similar internal drives, you know, to kind of transform food through understanding fermentation. Um, and and elevated the you know it elevated the whole the whole category, and so that's what we're in right now is sort of the peak time of this elevation of the artisan craft pizza movement. I was told by the editors of the pizza one of the pizza trade journals that fifty percent of the pizza um, of the um, 
fresh baked, fresh pizza, not frozen, but the fresh pizza in America comes from three main companies, you know, Pizza Hut, Domino's, and it might be, maybe it's four companies. It could be uh, Papa John's or one of the other, Little Caesars. Those, those they, half the pizza sold comes from those four companies. The other 50% comes from the small independent pizzerias and they divide up the rest of that pie. And so, and they're all fighting for their survival. Some of them have multiple locations. Some are just standalones, but they have to find a way to survive against the, 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 uh, you know, the scale that these big pizzerias can, the economy of scale gives them a big advantage price-wise. So how do you do it? You've got to come up with a better tasting product, uh, you know, something that, that changes the perception of the of the end user to be willing to pay the value-added cost of, of this better product. That's the challenge, and that's what people have risen to. And I think it's, that's an extent. And then the winner of all that is the consumers. You know, if you can, if you get on a quest, you, you, you'll find a place that meets those, your own personal criteria. And we all have our own criteria of what determines greatness. I don't want my commandments or my 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 own definitions to define that for everybody. It's just it was just the idea was to inspire some people to get on their own quest. And then, you know, and it doesn't have to be pizza even. It could be on anything. We're seeing on social media so many types of quests, the hamburger quest, the, the taco quest, the you know, the 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 uh, uh, uh the macaron there are people who make you know are obsessed with macarons the way that i am with pizza uh it's the same quest it's just a, it's and, and it never ends for people because it's not the end there's no end to it you don't get you don't hit one and you go oh that's it my quest is over i found the perfect macaron or i found the perfect slice of pizza because there's always going to be more and you're going to be hungry the next day anyway let me open it up Okay. Uh, excuse me. I, oh, okay, Kathy. I was going to say, let's turn it over to Chatty Kathy now. <laughs> okay. So Diane said, what are the most important variables in achieving a great crust structure from edge to center? For instance, Dan Richard talks about no tip sag, which he absolutely gets. What's important to get this right? No tip sag. Oh, the tip sag when you hold a slice out and it sags. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. There's another term for it. Um, well, in the end, I you know the the definition of baking is the application of heat to a product in an enclosed environment, meaning the oven, for the purpose of driving off moisture. That's the general definition of baking. Then within that definition, all sorts of transformations take place in the ingredients flour, you know, the sugars in the flour caramelize and the starches gelatinize and the proteins coagulate all that. That's not the definition of baking, but it's the, it's the outcome it's, it's of what happens in the baking process. Um, but this notion of uh, evaporating off moisture is key because you can't really achieve these other things until some of the moisture is cooked out. Um, with a Neapolitan pizza, when I say, when I say Neapolitan, I mean the classic Naples style with the 60 to 90 second bake it comes out of the oven. It's a thing of beauty. It's puffy around the edges, what they call the cornicion. It's puffed up. It's delicious. It's like just you, you, even the bread without the, the, the toppings is just delicious in its own right. It's crisp for about five minutes. And then as it sits and, and cools off, it gets softer and you can't pick it up. In fact, over there, they would just fold it up and almost eat it like a sandwich, you know, they the, because you can't hold the slice because the tip sags. So when, Dick, when, when Dan Richard's talking about no tip sag, He's saying, okay, I, that's not the kind of pizza I'm going to make. And we, and I think in, in, in the United States, uh, the preference has been through years and years of 
you know, understanding pizza the way it's come to us, you know, as a crisper product that we want, we want the qualities of that Naples pizza, but we don't want this, the, 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 we don't want it to soften up. we still want the snap. So, and so in my definition, what I look for in my favorite style of pizza is I want my crust to have some snap. And the only way you can get that snap is to bake it long enough to, to drive off enough moisture without burning the pizza to crisp it, to get it to be crisp. And that's, that comes down to then in the baking triangle of time, temperature, and ingredients, the three components of what baking, you know, is everything happens within time, temperature, and, and ingredients that I call it the baking triangle, um, finding the right balance. So if you want, so Chris Bianco, one of the things that was a breakthrough for, for Bianco uh, 25 years ago, when, when Peter Bianco became the poster boy was that he was doing a Neapolitan style wood-fired oven pizza but he wasn't baking it in 60 to 90 seconds. He was baking it in about four and a half to five minutes, which meant he was baking at a lower temperature, not 800 degrees, but about 625 degrees or so. And as a result, he was able to get all the puffy qualities of the Neapolitan pizza, but he also was able to achieve the snap in the crust so that when you ate a slice of his pizza, you could hold it up and you didn't have to worry about everything sliding off. That that sort of was one of the breakthroughs. Nancy Silverton achieved the same thing at Pizzeria Mozart. These are two of the, you know, again, they're they're iconic pizzerias because they they perfected the craft of their style. Nancy's pizza is slightly different from Chris's. Um, you know, Tony Gemignani's are different from they're all slightly different, but they're all they're all approaching it as I'm going to I'm going to perfect the craft of my style of pizza. Nancy even says on one of our videos, you know, when I opened Pizzeria Mozart, I wanted to be able to make the kind of pizza I wanted to eat. And so that's how that was what drove her vision. And, and in the end, her pizza is baked for seven minutes. And I could, didn't even believe that you could achieve a great pizza, you know, that still was moist on the inside, but had snap on the bottom. It, if you baked it that long, I thought it was going to bake it out. But because of the, the formulation that she came up with for her dough, it retained enough moisture so that all the, all the chemical reactions take place. The, the, the sugars caramelize, the starches gelatinize, the proteins coagulate, and it doesn't burn. And the flavors are great. And it's still moist and creamy in, in between the crust and the, and the toppings. And that's, you know, in the end, that's what, what makes the pizza so great. Um, and so they all got there in different ways. So there's not no one way, but in the end, to answer the question, how do you achieve that in your pizza is you have to find the sweet spot in your oven temperature setting uh, to, to get the, the, the undercrust to bake at the exact same time that the top and the cheeses and the toppings caramelize. And that can just usually by the third time you try it, it's either a matter of an oven temperature setting or which shelf in the oven you're baking on. If you're using a baking stone or a baking steel, which radiates heat in the bottom. And if your oven generates a lot of bottom heat, then you bake a little higher. If your oven, you know, if you're using convection, which is a whole different thing, you're probably going to want to bake closer to the middle or upper middle because you're getting a lot of circulating air. So, but you have to bake at a lower temperature. So there's, so it's a game and, 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 and there's no one answer other than the general rules, which is time, temperature, and ingredients. And remember that time and temperature are your, you know, they're your allies, they're, they're ingredients in the process, but usually, and those of you who are, and I know I've, I've seen some familiar friends and faces here who are making pizzas at home, um, who are achieving it because they've been playing with it. They've, they're, they're relentless about uh, trying to perfect their pizza, right? Robin, Bill, <laughs> relentless, you know. <laughs>
So, so um, on that same question, but I think you kind of answered it, but the following up on that same question, somebody said, how do you maintain integrity of the middle part of the crust after it's on the table? Well, that's, that happens in the oven. You have to bake it longer. You have to, you have to get that crisp. That's what I mean about um, like the Neapolitan pizzas. They're probably baking. Uh, maybe you need an extra minute of bake time to drive off more moisture. We're talking about moisture now. Um, so you have to, in order to get that crust to stand up uh, for the, the the duration of your dining experience, you have to bake it long enough to drive off enough moisture to keep that the crust from shelving, from from dipping, and um, and so sometimes it means lowering the oven temperature by twenty five degrees and baking it for one or two minutes longer. That's what I mean about playing with the with those you know the time and temperature aspect. Um, so if you're finding that your pizza dough, your crust is getting too soft, you know, by the when you get it to the table and f- within five minutes it's you're it's it's too soft for you, then you just have to adjust your baking temperature and and the duration of the bake. I mean, that's the first step anyway towards achieving that. Any favorite that flowers? Answers. Oh, sorry. That? Any favorite flowers? The cool the cool thing about American flour is that there's so much good American flour out there from a functional standpoint. You know, where there's a big movement again with in, in, in another trend in, in all the, the baking categories of uh, heirloom grains, uh, uh, regionally specific grown wheat, you know, locally milled. These are all good things. Sustainability is the overall arching term. The sustainability movement is is in the pizza world right now, and it's going to get bigger. Um, it doesn't always make it doesn't always guarantee a better pizza. To, you know, using these rare flowers and things like that, because you still have to have the craft and the technique, but it can, you know, give you a competitive edge if you're in the business and can deliver a great pizza. But as far as general flowers, you know, if you go to the supermarket, typically you're going to see general mills, either Harvest King or Better for Bread, both of which make great pizza. Uh, these are bread flowers. Uh, King Arthur flour, you have bread flour, and they have a, a all-purpose flour that is higher in protein than other brands of all-purpose flour. The, the, some people would prefer to use King Arthur's all-purpose flour than their bread flour because it's close to a bread flour already, but not quite as hard. Um, if you're doing a New York-style pizza, you know, uh, uh, which uh, which is the one pizza dough in the book that that calls for a higher protein, either you know, definitely bread flour, but if you can get it high gluten flour, that it was designed that flour that pizza style was developed with with a strong flour that can be stretched really, you know, wide stands up to tossing and everything else. And, and you tenderize it by putting oil in the dough fat. And uh, that fat could be, well, in the old days, they used to use shortening because they considered that superior to uh, oil um, from a functional standpoint. Um, but, but most people are shying away from shortening, but a, uh, something like um, uh, lard or bacon or uh, bacon fat or, chicken schmaltz all of those are fats they could work really well and that's there's a couple of recipes in the book that call for that instead of oil but those are ways again that you that you uh, depending on the style of, of crust that you're making um so again uh, the brands king arthur uh general mills uh pillsbury which is also general mills uh and then there's some other brands that that, that in various uh supermarkets have their own house brands whole foods has their uh, 365. Well, those are all made packaged for them by some of the bigger mills. Central Milling out of uh, Petaluma. Uh, well, their headquarters are Petaluma, California, but the mills are in Utah. Their their flour is being used by a lot of pizzerias. And if you go to uh, Whole Foods, 
and buy their 365 flour. That most of that is coming from central milling. That's high quality flour in its own right. So there's very few, very few brands that I can even think. Of. I can't think of any brands that make it to the shelves of the regular, you know, supermarkets that doesn't work. That isn't good. Uh, and after that, it's just you know you got to kind of make enough pizza and play around with maybe some side by side batches to de- determine which one you like. Or if you want to, if you some people like to blend a little all purpose with some bread flour. Um, I always prefer unbleached. I will always go choose unbleached over bleached because I think it has more flavor and aroma. Um, there's a big argument in New York about bromated flour versus non-bromated. Most bakers have moved away from using potassium bromate to, uh, which helps to make dough uh, puff more, rise more in the oven. There was a, a big argument with about that the classic New York sliced pizza went downhill as soon as they started to not use bromated flour. And, uh, uh, I'm not sure if, you know, that, I, I'm not sure how much of that is an emotional argument and how much of it can be proven in, you know, parallel taste testing and things like that. But I, you know, in the end, I'll, if I, I think that I would, I tend to try to stay away from bromated flour because I, I think there's some health risk, but not, most of us aren't eating enough of it that it re, it's going to be the cause of something for us, but it could. You know, so why mess with it? And it's not good for the planet. So I, you know, I, I tend to use unbromated flour and unbleached flour when I can, but brand wise, I, I'm pretty ecumenical about, you know, I think I made pizza on all these brands. I made bagels on all the, with all these brands. And, I, and, and if you didn't tell somebody what the brand was, they wouldn't know, they wouldn't say, Oh, that's not, that's not as good as the one made with the King Arthur flour. But if you love King Arthur flour, or if you love better for bread or harvest King, you, you stick with it. In the end, it's all the flavor rules. The only rule that matters. So how were pizzas made in the U.S. in U.S. pizzerias before World War II? Were there significant differences compared to today's pizzerias with flours, leavening agents, toppings, ovens, etc.? I don't know for sure. And we may have some historians here that do have an answer to that. And if you do, we may want to give them a minute on the mic. But um, um, my understanding is that um say before world war ii that prob i'm going to guess that most of the flour was coming from a few mills uh and um was most likely well very i don't know when bleached flour came into vogue but it was probably bleached um the yeast was usually fresh yeast not dry yeast dry yeast was more of a home baker's tool very rarely used in professional bakeries until recent times when, when some advantages were found by using instant yeast and other kinds of dry yeast. But there's still a lot of bakers who um, insist that, that it's not the same if they, they, that the fresh yeast gives it a flavor, imparts a, a flavor, because you could use more of it. It's not as concentrated and it has a flavor. Um, I, I've worked with all the different yeasts. They all work from a functional standpoint. And that's a big term in, in culinary schools who are teaching our students about the function of the choices that they make of the ingredients. And, and so that they, they don't just, they don't just get to choose an ingredient. They have to explain to us what the function of that ingredient is for, in order for them to have chosen it. And so I think that, uh, that all the yeast can now work, but back then in those days, I would say probably almost everyone used fresh, fresh compressed yeast. Um, and, and fat was usually shortening, not, not uh, liquid oil. 
and there's still a pretty strong belief and maybe some evidence that the that um, shortening does you know, has has more functionality than liquid oil. It, it um, doesn't. Uh, it does for some reason. It it, it 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 produces a more tender product. So, what are your thoughts of experiences using a rolling pit? It doesn't seem to slow Mark Iacano down any, although it's supposed to be sacrilege in the tradition. Uh. Well, Mark is a great pizza maker in New York, uh, and um, he's become famous for, I think he uses a wine bottle sometimes instead of a rolling bin, you know, roll out his, his pizzas and, and his pizzas puff in the oven and they really, they work. And I think part of it is, is he, you know, wants to, he doesn't like to be bound by rules either. He's, he's from Brooklyn, you know, he's going to make pizza his way. And he wanted to show that you don't have to you know, be gentle and hand stretch it that way. He, he, he's happy with the way his pizzas turn out. Um, personally, I, and, and there's a time in, in certain recipes, even in this book, call for you to roll the dough out because you need to get it thinner and you want it to be more even and everything else. Um, and usually if I am going to roll it out um, with, and which means I'm being more brutal with the dough, I'm, 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 I'm toughening up the gluten because the more you kind of handle the dough, the tighter the gluten gets, then I'll usually provide some resting time afterwards for the gluten to relax a little bit to, again, so that from the function of the, of what it's doing so that it doesn't make the dough too tough. And so I don't know, I haven't eaten it. Mar- I mean, I had, I've seen Mark's pizzas, you know, demonstrated. I've never eaten at uh, what's the name of his place in Brooklyn? Uh, uh, I, I blanked out on it, but it, um, but it's it's a de- you know destination pizzeria in Brooklyn, um, and everyone who's had it that I know of says that it's fabulous pizza. But it, it, more people would do it if it was. Now I went to a pizzeria in Chicago about ten years ago, and they were very. It was new. They were hot. They were hardly able to keep up with the demand. And they were running the pizza doughs through a machine, like a rolling machine, and and then staging them on a platform. Uh, and I was, it was just killing me to watch them, you know, like brutally handle this dough to stretch it out in order to, to get them lined up. But by the time they got turned into pizzas, they probably sat there for thirty or forty minutes and maybe did tenderize and still worked. The pizza I had there that night didn't wasn't very impressive, but I thought that was that that seemed like a violation of of a functional rule. But then there's these guys that are doing it. They're rolling it out. So there's no absolutes on this. I would just say uh, guidelines. And in the end, if the piece is working, um, the flavor rule trumps the written rule. So uh, I think this is a reference to the cast iron pizza. But what percentage of the topping should be baked with the pizza? And what percentage should be fresh added after cooking? Well, that's, there's no rule on that. You can bake 100% with, uh, um, of, of, of the stuff on it or 5% of the stuff on it. In this case, I think it's like the tomatoes and maybe some cheese are the only thing baked on it. But uh, it depends on what you're trying to achieve with that, with that pizza. This is, um, you know, this is uh, focused on these sort of fresh ingredients with just a little bit of cooked stuff and, and soft cheese underneath. Um but there's no rule on that. I think it's just on the side, the type of pizza that you're trying to make. But um, if you're making a cast iron pizza where you really want, um, you know, um, like uh, like Bert's pizza, you know, where you really want it, it's all about that crispy crust edge that all the ingredients are pretty much baked, you know, at, on the pizza. Not very little is added at the end, maybe some fresh Parmesan or something like that. But it's not designed for a lot of fresh ingredients. That's kind of a more 
recent innovation I think we're seeing. Um, in, and as I say that, I realize there are probably places around the country that have been doing it for generations that we just don't know about them. But I think this is a trend is, is a new thing because it's a visually beautiful and it, and this, the, the, the combination of fresh flavor versus, you know, in, in, in contrast and concert with cooked, um, you know, uh, melty molten cheeses and hot tomatoes and things. They, it just works. It gives you another layer of flavor that you weren't getting before, but I don't, I can't answer that question with a, a, uh, a rule because there is no rule in this particular pizza. Tony's pizza. I mean, too, if I can get back to it, um, there's four ounces of, of mozzarella shredded pizza cheese, mozzarella um, that goes on and some provolone, four ounces of provolone or fontina. All that goes on before the bake per piece per pizza Four no two ounces, two ounces because this makes four pizzas. So two ounces per, per pie and then, and some, and some pizza sauce and then everything else goes on afterwards, including the goat's milk, uh, cheese and things like that. So it's, it's about 50, 50, but it's really, uh, that's where, what's what we call the, the baker's choice. You know, that's where, that's where the artist and the craftsperson gets to make the call. So have you played with the home pizza ovens like Uni, Rockbox, I think Braville? Do you have a favorite? Well, I use the Breville, the Breville one because they gave me one. I didn't want to spend <laughs> $900 for one, but, you know, they gave me one because they because I was testing some pizzas in them to prove that they work. And I'm very impressed with the performance of my Breville. I use, I do, believe it or not, in this little home office, I turn this into a little pizzeria and do demos, live demos, you know, on Zoom. And I and I make this into a pizzeria and I can bring my little Breville in, uh, into my office and bake them in there. And I can do uh, both pan pizzas. There's a setting for, for pan pizzas and you can also do Neapolitan pizzas on them one at a time. And they work great. The Unis and the Rock Boxes, I think were game changers. I think that all three of those together represent a, a real shift in the home pizza making movement because they've democratized pizza making. It's they're affordable. Uh, you know, some of some of uh, others of you are more uh, in tune with the consumer trends and directions and things like that. Maybe want to jump in uh, on this. Um, uh, I would uh, meathead. You might have something to say say here because. Uh, you know, you see what's going on out there in 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 tools in the world of people buying tools. But I think that the response that from people that are making great pizzas in these and the passion that they feel when they have a tiny little oven and didn't have to invest a couple thousand dollars to build a wood fired brick oven and could make a great you know pizza uh, in a portable little you know wood fired or gas fired oven, uh, they get so excited, and the pizzas are coming out. Beautifully, you just can't. Oh, you would think you can't do a commercial operation that way. There is a guy in uh, Rochester, New York, has a, a, a mobile pizza operation. We have a, a, a have a uh, interview with him on Pizza Quest, and his the name of his operation is called Peels on Wheels. Peels on Wheels, and what he, he did is he got a little uh, a little mobile truck. I think it's a um, a, uh, a three wheeler. And he got three rock boxes, three or four rock boxes, and he set them up in the back. And when he opens up the back of his little truck, you've got basically three or four mini ovens. Each one can do one pizza at a time. And he'll pull into a place and he'll make the pizzas one at a time, but he's cranking them out. 
So he's got, he can do four pizzas at any time, just like somebody with a large oven could do four pizzas. He can do four pizzas, but each one in its own oven. And when he opens the back and, the, and he fires up the oven, it looks like a rocket ship. I mean, these, these beautiful golden flames are coming out of there. Uh, so he even made his little rock boxes work in a commercial setting. Um, but anyway, my experience has been that they, they, they are, they made it easier, affordable, accessible, and they work. So, uh, and the, the most expensive one is the Breville, which I have, but they, you know, I don't know, they've, they sold out on their first run, they've sold out before they could even get them into the shelves of the, of the stores. So people are willing to pay more for something like that if, the, if it works. Actually, I know somebody who does, ha who did build the wood fired oven in the backyard type thing. He yeah. got a Breville and uh, he was using that backyard a lot less. Exactly. And and I think this is a real challenge for the for the wood fire, uh, like the Forno Bravo, which is the sponsor of one of my sponsors for Pizza Quest. This is going to be a real consumer challenge for them. They've already had recognized they needed to move more towards the consumer and not the commercial side, um, although they do both. But, you know, the, their challenge is not from the other wood fire companies. Their challenge is now from uh, from the Uni and the and the Rockbox people who can undercut price-wise and you know so they've got to come up with a competing product and i'm sure they will if they want to stay relevant so our last question it appears do you have a favorite supplier of pepperoni prosciutto and salami well one of the ones that's hot right now is ezo ezzo um they are they they are getting used by a lot of um you know um what's the word, you know, cutting edge pizzerias, um, even Hormel, uh, we have one guy in our, in, in the book named Nino Coniglio, who is a world champion pizza maker in his own right. He's out of Brooklyn as well. And Nino's a character and, and, and he's like, uh, you know, um, a rock star in his, in the world of pizza. Um, he's using Hormel, believe it or not, Hormel cupping, uh, pepperoni. Um, so even Hormel, which is a big company is, is recognizing that this, there's a big trend going this way towards higher quality salumis. Um, so they're, they're, they're coming out with a, they're up like a premium version and he, and Leo, I'm sorry, uh, Nino swears by them. Uh, I tried to find some in my local supermarket and I just found their normal stuff and it was okay. But uh, Ezo is one brand. Um, other than that, I think, uh, and cause I think they're excess, uh, available on a wider scale they got distribution i don't know i think after, other than that all i can think of is, is uh you know trying to support your local uh salumerias you know and and uh you know uh, uh the guys who are who are doing it in your local you know town um so i'm sure in chicago there've got to be a few charcuterie type places that are making great um you know salumis of all styles and, and i'm guessing that many of them are getting into pepperoni you know, pep, there was a reason why pepper, even though pepperoni gets sort of poo-pooed by by the the, the Italia files, you know, the ones who are like hard that that no, nothing's as good as the salumis coming out of Italy, is because you know it's ubiquitous and it's cheap and it's easy to make. It's but it's but it actually works. It, it even average pepperoni has a lot of flavor. I mean, it's got it's got you know paprika, it's got spices, it's got all sorts of things, and and it works on a pizza. Um, now it's just now the time has come where every, you know people want to raise the game. If you, so, if, if average pepperoni works, what happens if you have great pepperoni? And that's kind of what we're seeing. We're starting to see some great, better versions that could stand there, maybe in a competition 
uh, against, you know, in some kind of a salumi competition, you know, in held in in uh, Sicily somewhere, you know, where there's impartial judges, if that's possible, you know, they might hold their own in a competition. We don't know the same way that American wines are holding their own and American cheeses are holding their own now in international competitions. I think, you know, the the charcuterie and salumi sort of categories in this country are matching what's going on on the world stage. But I, I don't know the names of, you know, I just, I have a local place that, that I can go to. I think when in doubt, just go to your local, you know, artisan, uh, uh, what do they call it? A, uh, a pork, a pork shop, you know, then get your, get your salami there. By the way, the, the, that same person did ask, had you ever tried Cremonelli in Salt Lake city? Yes, real. And thank you for mentioning that. I love that their product. I've had it. Yes, yes, and, and uh, uh, yeah, everything that I've had of theirs was really, really good. Um, there's another one um, that we use. Uh, we use a lot in our videos. Um, um, La La Quercia, La Quercia, uh, and I'm I'm not sure exactly where they're based. Somewhere in the in the in in the Midwest, somewhere uh, La Quercia does really good. Um, you know, pork products, and uh, uh, they even have guanciale. They've got all sorts of cool stuff. Well, I was popping up. So, <laughs> by the way, uh, they in Iowa, is, Peggy, as Peggy says, Iowa is Iowa where where La Quercia is based. I uh, think but, she's right. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I love the product. Everything I've had of theirs was really good. Right. And I know there's been a number of compliments and things like that. And I'm going to give you the feed. P Peter, this was great, as always. Learned a lot. Well, you know, I could talk about this all night. I feel like I went over and I'm sorry about well, that. Well, that's okay. But it's I, okay with but me. I, but it's, I see, I, you know, it's when you, well, you all know this because all, all of you are, you know, passionate about uh, the things that you love as well. That when you're talking about something that, you know, you enjoy, you can just talk, stay up all night and talk about it. Oh, no, your depth of knowledge is great. Scott, you want to turn it over to you? Well, I just want to thank you for sharing your pizza passion with us tonight. It was uh, savory food for thought, and everything you said was delectable. And uh, I don't I don't want to sound too schmaltzy, though. So thank you again, <laughs> Peter. And uh, when, when's your next book? <laughs> uh, well, I'm currently not working on one. I've got a couple ideas. We we were waiting to see when I talked to the publisher about doing a volume two of Pizza Quest because I realized I have enough material that I could do this again. Uh, uh, of course, being the publisher, their response was, "Well, let's wait and see how sales go on this one." You know, and I understand that. So it's we're only been out. The book's only been out and available for a few weeks now, and uh, and the MP there was an NPR feature that some of you may have heard just like that broke on Monday, and I don't have the link here to put up. A, on the screen, but if you uh, if you um, um, if you just Google, you know NPR and put my name in there, they may it lead you to that. It ended up being a three minute um, feature, and um, and it was nicely done. Uh, the interview was ninety minutes long. We did the interview about six weeks ago, and for ninety minutes, she had so much material. And I'm thinking, how are you going to get this down to a short story? And she did. She got it down to uh, in three minutes of. This distillation from a from a ninety minute you know conversation with all sorts of great sound bites left on the cutting room floor, but uh, anyway that just got out there and then and that bumped that apparently this immediately bumped the book up to number one in the pizza category on Amazon. Uh, so we're hoping we can hold it as Ben Franklin says. You know you 
you've got a republic if you can keep it. So we've got a number one if we can keep it, and we'll we'll see how it goes. And then you know, hopefully, I'll get this back to Chicago. Uh, I think uh, uh, Meet him mentioned that the 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 school I was referring to is in Lyle, right? L I is it, am I saying it right? Mm -hmm. L I S L E, uh, and that's the that's the place where where um, uh, you know uh, it's still going. The school is still going, even though Leo is no longer teaching there. But he's going to eventually, you know, he'll be doing some public classes in Chicago, and he's working on trying to bring me into Chicago to do something at a, a venue at some point. And when we when we have it, I'll let you know. Thank you. Look forward to it. Yeah, me too. Because I always love to come to Chicago. So, and uh, and uh, look forward to seeing you know, some of you in person the next time I do. And again, I want to thank you all for um, you know for coming tonight. If you have, if you want to do any follow up, uh, you can write to me. Uh, my email, I'll put it on here, is uh, peter at pizzaquest.com. That's pretty easy. Pretty easy to remember. Um, peter at pizza, yeah, you can write to me there. And I try to get back there to people within a day or two. Um, and we're still posting new stuff on the pizzaquest.com, the website. Um, we're, we're branching out, we're doing not just pizza, we're we did we've done a couple things with a guy called named the uh, nicknamed the cheese dude so we've been doing some focused things on cheese we, we, we're getting ready if it hasn't gone up already uh with uh, lou bank who's a chicago guy who i love uh, who's big in the mezcal you know uh agave spirit world oh, he's yeah. got his own podcast called uh, agave road trip and i'm going to be a guest on his podcast but he was a guest on ours and he basically took me through a uh you know, a, a, a horizontal tasting of, of various agave beverages. So, and because again, we're finding that same passion and that same commitment to craft, to raising. You know, you've got tequila and and you've got everyday uh, mezcal, and then you've got these artisan sort of, you know, hard to find mezcals that are on a whole different level. And uh, he opened my mind to you know understanding what those nuances and differences really are. So we 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 think we can explore. The same, you know, everything becomes a metaphor for something else. And I think that really the theme for me in the next year is, is what is that something else that's driving all of us and, you know, that, that, that we explore through food, but it's touching something deeper than just the food itself. And then and I don't think we'll ever get to the end of that one. Well, thank you so much again. And uh, so uh, next month when you have your new book out, we'll have you back. So... <laughs> I'll get to work. I'll get to work. But I don't know if 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 they if they're not ready to do another Pizza Quest book, then I do have one that's half finished that I may try to get back on. It's not. It'd be on a whole different subject from this. So I'll keep you posted. And, and I asked Peter. I, I did ask Peter um, when I when we were kind of checking technically uh, all the stuff, and I could we were doing a pre Zoom call. And I looked at the library behind him and I said, are all those your books? But uh, I guess not, but he's very prolific. So, and we will look forward to your prolificity in the future. I don't know if you can see it. Uh, there's at the right over my, uh, my right, my, my left shoulder, there's a, a loaf of bread here. Um, it looks like a loaf of bread. It looks like a loaf of Lionel Polan, Polan bread. And that is a pillow. That's that's a pillow that looks like a loaf of bread. I've had that pillow for 20 some years, ever since I went to the Poulan Bakery. And I love that pillow because it, it really looks like one of those loaves of bread. And anyway, uh, 
Look forward to seeing you all again soon. And thank uh, you. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it.